And I just want our kids to be ready for the 21st and the 22nd and 21st centuries. That's all I want. No matter what they are, black, white, poor, rich, I don't care where they come from. I just want them to be ready to thrive in the future um, and keep this country where it should be and get it where it's supposed to be. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast, member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, we have on Senke Henderson, who is a writer, and his book, Sit Down and Shut Up, premieres today. You can find it on Amazon or various other locations. And we get to talk about his experience um, kind of looking firsthand at what our students are doing in the classroom. He decided to take on some assignments as a substitute teacher. And he has some really unique insights. And this is one of the first episodes I did where we didn't necessarily see eye to eye until we realized that we were a lot closer in seeing eye to eye than we originally thought. So this was a really fun episode. I got a lot of value out of it and a lot of insight. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Once again, the author is Sin K. Henderson. The book is Sit Down and Shut Up. Enjoy. But Sin K., thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on your special day. Hey, thanks so much. It's a bit nerve-wracking, a bit uh, <laughs> nervous, but also exciting. Yeah, talk like walk me through that. Well, first of all, today, you know, again, happy launch day. That's a this is yep. your first first book, correct? It is my first book, and I'm uh, hopefully not my last, but I'm abundantly proud. As well, you should be. So, um, a provocative title. I love that because um, you know you've kind of taken a look at some of my work, and you understand that I'm passionate about this and that whole sit down and shut up isn't empowering kids. But um, take me on the journey of your willingness to want to write this book and then also your journey of being the substitute teacher. Well, um, happily, uh, I am a writer by trade. I had not intended to write a book. Um, I work in television. I work for a show on Showtime right now, um, right for a show on Showtime currently. Um, and I, but I'm a bit of a bum <laughs> with my writing habits, which is to say, if it were up to me, I'd be up until four or five o'clock in the morning. Um, and I found that that was actually that sort of my natural body rhythm wasn't helping me, uh, was sort of a bit debilitating for me when I was trying to write the things I was trying to write. So a friend of mine, I'd always, both of my parents were teachers, educators. I'd always been a tutor when I, every job I worked. I always liked education. So a friend of mine suggested that I should think about substitute teaching maybe twice a week. It would force me to organize my day. I have to wake up early and I'd come home, maybe take a nap and ride into the night or the next day. So I thought, actually, that's kind of an interesting idea. Um, again, like I said, I've always been involved in schools and with tutoring kids to some degree. So I took on that job. Um, relatively quickly, uh, you know, after I got that idea, I decided, let me try that. Um, and on my first day, my early period, my first and second period, I got to say, I got my, I don't know if we can curse on the show, but um, AWS handed to me right away. <laughs> and it's sort of the opening antidote of the story. I mean, this kid, I'm from the South, and they say, you know, he called me everything but a child of God. Um, and just lit into me, and this wasn't a small kid. He was a football player. I mean, it was a hairy experience. And so um, I kicked the kid out, sit the, got the uh, campus aid, took the kid to the office. And, you know, he wasn't the only one who was sort of ready to rumble. So to speak. He was the loudest and the most aggressive, uh, the most assertive about it. Um, 
And but maybe five, ten minutes later, the kid came back into my class with a note from the office saying, OK, to return to class. Um, and there was no apology. There was no detention. I asked, by the way, there was no suspension. Nobody called home. It was just he was back. He was glaring at me. And I had to finish class with that. So that was my first period. I'm pretty sure for, that was one of my early periods. And another kind of situation that later in the day. Um, and I went home like, what the hell is going on here? Um, it was just a different world than the school, school that I encountered, the classmates I encountered when I was a kid. That said, that same day, I had some terrific experiences. So in some bizarre warped portion of my mind, I kind of loved it. But at the same time, I had been subject and the recipient like everybody has been, has, has been over the last many years about why schools are failing, all these awful teachers, they're just, uh, you know, just delivering terrible um, efforts with these kids, and they're the reasons they need to be driven out because of tenure and that sort of thing. And I just remember thinking, wait, what, what's going on? Because what I encountered just on that first day was a class that was absolutely in no way, shape, or form interested in having me be in charge, having me run the class, having sitting down and listening to me. Um, and it wasn't just because I was a substitute, by the way. I know many people say, oh, that was kind of part of the course as I started to do this more and um, be more involved and started moving from subbing once or twice a week to subbing every day. Um, and so I thought I'm not a historian, but I trained in some ways as a historian undergrad. In relatively short order, I realized, oh, there's an untold story here. And it is a kind of a bit of an uncomfortable untold story, but it is a very necessary untold story. And it is just about, on the surface, I would say, it is about adolescent chaos. And the chaos that these kids in poor neighborhoods, and I was particularly working in Black and Latin inner city neighborhoods, but this holds true of white rural kids too, which I'll get to in a minute, but adolescent kids that were coming into these schools and that, which is the symptom, but also, and kind of, and it was a chaos that both the adults, meaning the principals and the teachers and the kids themselves seemed helpless to control and subdue and get under wraps. So I wanted to tell the story of what that was, where it came from, how we might solve it, what its different sources are. And it's more than just a book. It, it's a sort of memoir of my first year, but it's more than just, oh, these kids are misbehaving. And they are. I mean, many of them are, not all of them by any stretch. Um, but it really is a try to go into explanation about where this comes from. And I'll just tell you the thing that really let me know there was a story here, it's not from my hunch, is I was at that same school, I ended up taking a long-term assignment at that school. Um, a teacher who had gone to the school, the high school, uh, as an, uh, a high school student when he was young, he was now teaching at the school. And one day he said, um, after a pretty brutal day of dealing with some tough kids, he said, you know, the school was always tough, even when I went here. But the kids, we used to fight each other. Now kids fight the teacher. And I was so stunned by that and so unsettled and also fascinated by that. And I realized that he was right. I mean, when I was young, I mean, kids, we fought each other on the bus. We curved all, I mean, it was tough. I didn't go to a bad school by any stretch, but it was a tough school. 
you know, it was a, you know, we had our, we had rough and tumble situations. But nobody fought a teacher. No one cursed at a teacher. No one cursed around a teacher. My first cousins are live on inner city Chicago, south side of Chicago. They are, let's just say, affiliated with street organizations. <laughs> um, they never threatened their teachers. They never fought their teachers. So I was, so I took that simple, relatively innocent statement. He was surprised by it, but I knew to me that was the beginning of a mystery. And it was, and the book is in some ways set up that way um, of unraveling why that shift had happened from kids fighting each other to kids being aggressive against the teachers. And I'll just say really quickly, I repeat that, again, this is not just a story about black and Latin poor kids. The harshest thing that was, I heard about adolescent chaos, adolescent behavior came from a white teacher talking about her white students in the Appalachian Hills of Ohio, the Appalachian Trail. Um, there's a book called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which was a big hit last year. Um, and the teacher said it's a harsh thing, so I just want to warn everybody. Um, I, they, the teacher said something along the lines of they want us to be shepherds to these kids, but they forget to tell us that some of them have been raised by wolves. So, again, tough stuff. But yeah. that was a white teacher. Why did you talking about white kids? Well, um, I mean, so I, this is this is such an interesting time, though, because like, and I see it too. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen actually the bookends have been the difficult parts, and by the bookends, I mean the the underfunded rural school and the yep. underfunded underserved inner city school is yep. at one end, and then ironically enough, the college prep school doesn't have any need or want to change because they have this thing called tradition. Mm -hmm. My circle is innovation and entrepreneurship. And so Mm -hmm. I have seen more suburban middle-class schools have this desire to change Mm -hmm. because, and because, because like the school you were at, I get it. Like they're focused on sitting down and shutting up. Like I get into, like I, I talk to a lot of superintendents and, and the schools that we're talking about, they they bring up a prideful thing of, you know, we are down, our expulsions are down 20%. Right. We did not have one stabbing this year. Right. And while I respect, I respect them wanting to have a safe school, yeah. them moving forward and preparing kids for futuristic things isn't on the radar. And the irony is, is our kids go to Stanford prep school or our, our kids go to Harvard prep school also doesn't have a desire to change because, well, all of our, did you see our SAT scores? Right. Fantastic. And I'm scared on both ends because you know, this is coming. The autumn is, you know, the the AI and a lot of machine learning and a lot of things Mm -hmm. that can be automated will be automated. So Mm -hmm. getting kids to think out 15 years, 10 years and be innovative is honestly dead at the bookends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I have, it's an interesting thing that you say. So let me, um, let me deal with that in two parts. So I think that, you know, we have a really big cleavage in American society between the poor Americans, black or white and upper middle class Americans, which are mostly, there's obviously some black middle class, but those types of schools are predominantly, you know, white. Um, but there's some, but we're talking classes. So, 
the class situation is they're just trying to have a functioning school at this point. And so for, so let me just say one of the things that I figured, and then I'll get into the innovation thing, which I have, I would say, complicated feelings about, which I hope we can discuss. Um, So let me just talk about the behavior issue. So so the teachers, and and then I'll move into what you were saying, which I think is very interesting. Um, The first issue is, so what was the mystery? I said, you know, kids go from fighting each other, fighting, fighting, fighting the teachers. What I realized, so that was a mystery for me. I wanted to figure out why that had happened. That was a sociological question. It was a technological question. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't even really fundamentally an education question. It was a sociological question, sociological mystery. This is what I figured out or I found out. I was driving home one day um, and Jay-Z came on the radio. He was on NPR being interviewed about a book that he'd written, Decoded, I think it was. Um, And Terry Press, Terry Gross, excuse me, came on the radio and asked him, what was the effect of crack cocaine coming into your neighborhood? Jay-Z used to sell crap um, before it became a megastar. And he said the most fascinating thing to me to, that I'd ever heard. He didn't say it was violent, it was a gangster. He said he didn't say police presence. He said it destroyed the authority figure. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I researched it, and I based on, he kind of went on a little bit. But fundamentally, and this is why it's connected to the white kids too, because they're dealing with the opioid crisis now. Um, crack was a child's economy. Really quickly, I'll just say because of the um, of the mandatory drug sentences that were laid down with Ronald Reagan, if you were an adult selling crack, you would go to jail for for forever. They lock you up, throw away the key. So they, but if you were a kid, you go to juvie for three months and be back out on the street. So they turned over the selling of drug of, of crack cocaine to kids as young as 11, 12, 13. and crack was so powerfully addictive that the adults were completely beholden to it. So it totally upended the relationship of young people to adult, adults. And people underestimate how devastating crack was to inner city neighborhoods in the way they're underestimating the devastation of the opiate crisis now. Um, and I'm going to get, I, 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 I promise you I'll get to the technology and the change because I, I think it's important. It's a very fascinating issue. Um, so... Uh, crack cocaine, the opioid crisis. Now, crack cocaine, there are economists who say it swept through those poor neighborhoods like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It was violent. It so destroyed, so disrupted those, the very fabric of those communities. It set people, black inner city, there's, and there's another economist who said that nothing had retarded the growth, economic uh, growth of black America more than crack cocaine. The only thing more so was Jim, the Jim Crow laws um, in, uh, uh, during Reconstruction. That's sort of a devastating thing. And so just to pivot, um, so one, that's why I say it's connected to the white kids and the white poor working class, because they are dealing with the opioid crisis, and it is devastating those communities. Now, moving on to the technology, the reason this is fascinating and sort of a point of friction for those poor communities is I'm actually not a huge fan of for those communities, the change and the innovation. And this only is because those neighborhoods have been so aggressively disrupted. I know disruption, disruption, disruption is a watchword, a byword for people in, in a lot of different industries, one of which is educators. 
And I absolutely support it in those environments you're talking about, those middle class, middle class environments. One of the reasons I'm wary of it, jumping into it without thinking about it and its implications, is because you have to look at the sociological environment and what happened in those environments before you bring in new new fancy ways of doing things. And my feeling was, and I've been now, I've been into I've been into that year, I went to 50 different schools, poor schools, rich schools, private schools. I've been in every type of secondary, middle school, high school type of learning environment. And I paid attention because that's what I did. Because I realized there was a story here. I paid attention to everything. I paid attention to the technology. I paid attention to the teachers. I paid attention to the kids. And for those poor inner city schools where, who, that have been really destroyed by the upending of just the basic relationships between adult and child, I actually think that the choice, for example, the charter school, the choice movement, actually exacerbated, made it worse. And I'll try and explain why. Um, because the driving out teacher, veteran, te- veteran teachers, black and white in some of these neighborhoods, were the only last vestige of authority in these environments that have been destroyed by a loss of authority because of crack cocaine. They could boast having taught a grandparent, a parent, a child. And so they still had some sense of respect between adult and child. And because of the way, and unfortunately, the choice movement, which has some valuable aspects to it, came into these environments not understanding what they were looking at. All they saw were failing schools, outrageous schools, failing test scores, and they just assumed it was the teacher's fault. And I'm not saying they weren't bad teachers. So I absolutely agree with you that when an environment is stable and stabilized and seeing success, but is starting to get antiquated and stuck in that success and doesn't want to grow out of that or grow or try something. That is a problem. We need kids to be able to face and look at the challenges of the 21st century. Middle class, have a middle class, you name it. Um, but the environments that I was in, they were so undone by the, the bad version of destabilization or the bad version of disruption that I actually, for those there has to be, even if it's, into, I don't mind the intellectual part of the disruption of new things. I absolutely, and let me be clear, as a teacher, I'm actually now, um, I absolutely believe in finding new ways of getting kids to learn, new ways of getting kids excited about things. But we also need some version of the old-fashioned stability um, in these schools, in these really poor schools. And that's kind of the behavioral component. Yeah. I don't yeah, know if that I, makes sense. I, I, it does, but I mean, I'm scared because the rest of the world won't look like that. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're wanting them to catch up on the 1980s, and because, like, I'm, I'm for the record, I'm, I'm mortified for this for any school. Like, yeah, the sit down, shut up mentality. Like, I, I talk to people all the time. Like, my, my, my passion is I want all my students to think like entrepreneurs. I don't think that they should be. It's a lonely, hard road. Yeah. But if you think mm-hmm. like an entrepreneur, you are looking for opportunities. I think the world right now is looking to blame people. I think more, yeah. people, more people, more hours will be dedicated today. People will be scrolling through seeing what Trump said. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, for the record, he's going to say something stupid. I, I get that. But like mm-hmm. your mental effort on trying to find something that's holding you back could be spent on you trying to find a breakthrough. And 
um, that, that wanting to be there, like which Mm -hmm. came first, did kids hate school or did you create an environment where they don't want to be there? And by working on, but I get your catch 22, you have to have some level of compliance and like, look, you can't run around and, you know, act like this and expect to learn anything. And that is the catch 22. That's so hard because the jobs of the future um, are going to require that you aren't told to sit down that you are taught, you know, well, heck you've seen some of the data, half of America's jobs will be freelance by next year. Yeah, but let me just jump in there. So, but I'm taught, what I'm speaking to is just, so I wrote this book, so, or a freelance. You have to have so much self-discipline Absolutely. to succeed as a freelance yep. person. You have to be able to sit. I wrote a, I wrote a book on a freelance. I guess they paid me, you know, X amount of money, but I had to organize my own day. I had to eat, with, you know, no one told me when to clock in. I could vote when I wanted to write, but I had to get it done. And so I yep. had to have the self-control and self-discipline to turn off the TV, turn off my cell phone, and turn in the, enough work on time so they could say, okay, we're ready to publish this, we're ready to edit, that sort of thing. That takes enormous. It actually, the ironic thing, I think, is the freelance world requires actually more self-discipline in a way, more self-control, more impulse control than the traditional world where a boss is standing over you and saying, Absolutely. you're going to get fired. So in the traditional think, school world. Yeah. So, like, can, so, we, can we provide some of those opportunities to say, here's your opportunity. You can take it and, and at least right. scaffold that upward. I hope so. I guess what, I guess for me, you know, when we're talking about raising kids to just have, so for example, one of the suggestions I have in the book is every child in every school, particularly public schools need to be, needs to be taught in school impulse control, which can be taught. And it can be taught at five years old. You know, there's a whole marshmallow test that, that guy just died actually. Um, that should be a part of every curriculum, impulse control. Because there are kids, you know, it, very often if your parents don't have any control, if you come from a drug addicted background, if you have kids, parents come from poverty where you end up without impulse control. You, if your mother was especially young when she got married or on, or, or on with, the odds are high your, your, that her child will have like impulse control. They should be taught that in the schools. You're going to need impulse control in the freelance gig, gig, gig economy. Because you're going to have a thousand distractions. You're not going to have the four walls and the boss and the cubicle next door. You're going to have to do it in a cafe. You're going to have to be doing it on the fly. You know what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm saying is I, I think that whatever, wherever we go, more technology, virtual school. You know, I got, I shouldn't ruin this, but um, I, I, uh, I, um, I, I in the book on the cliffhanger whether I'm going to decide to get an actual teaching certificate and become a teacher. But let's just put it this way. There is the biggest, um, one of the biggest, all the, the MOOCs in the online schools. That takes so much self-discipline. Yeah. To go, and, and I went to Harvard undergrad and loved it. And I did well, I thrived. When I am about to ruin it, I went and got, I, I've started my, I'm actually now a fully certified teacher. I'm not going to but whatever. I went in online to get it. And my teach, my advisor said, because I didn't want to sit down in the classroom, that kind of thing. I'm a good student. My advisor said, oh, we got to check in once a week. I said, hey, lady, you don't have to work on me. Just tell me when it's due, uh, what time, what day. 
it'll get there. If I have a question, I'll send you an email. She said, you're the best student I got. I can scratch off the, as a prompt. I told her I went to Harvard. I did well. I'm good. That, that required internal fortitude and internal discipline for me to know, okay, I got three more days. I'm working full time. I got enough time to do this and get it done. It requires more self-discipline. So the idea, I think we have to separate out the idea of technological and even intellectual disruption from behavioral and adolescent disruption. So civil disobedience and, and adolescent disobedience are not the same thing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, I do. And so, uh, but but so I'm like I, again, I, that's what's just so confusing is like, in what and again, I do understand this and respect this, and this is what makes me scratch my head. And quite frankly, um, this is where you're going to see rise of the suburban kid because yep. it's almost unfair because yep. I've seen more suburban schools listen to people like Daniel Pink, mm-hmm. understand the brilliance of Seth Godin, Tina mm-hmm. these because they're like, hey, uh, the, wor- like, the world's changing so rapidly. So when schools change over in 15 and 20 year increments, now, mm-hmm. I mean, think about how a two-year-old cell phone is obsolete in, in most people's eyes. So this, the suburban schools are taking their marching orders and saying, hey, innovate now or get left behind. Mm-hmm. We can look at mm-hmm. Kodak and some of these other companies. Meanwhile, the schools that are still can be complained, like our SAT, all hail the SAT score. Mm-hmm. Uh, joke's mm-hmm. on them. Here's mm-hmm. Zoom. Like you've seen some of the reports. Google, Microsoft, they're starting to hire people with a high school education, but it doesn't matter because they're great coders. Right, um, right, right. And then on the other bookend, you've got the, you know, oh, we got like, and don't get me wrong. I still love a good graduation um, number. But like right. when your focus is just getting them out of the building, okay, we've kind yeah. of hurt our mission. Like, yeah, I want them to graduate, but I want to make sure that when they fly the nest, that they'll fly. Like, oh, we graduate. And, and those graduation problem. rates. Right, and and those graduation rates are fudged. All they mean is we lower the standards. Absolutely, to graduate, we got them out of the freaking door. Now let's not worry about anymore. And that's the thing that can like the amount of occupations that are going to disappear in five years is astounding. It's shocking. It it should keep you up at night. But I hear you. Here's what I would say, and I think I'm probably not as panicked as you because, and it may be because. I'm not a natural, I don't love technology, I just don't. I'm not an old man by any means, but, and I think, here's what I, here's my strong feeling about it. And I totally get, we are in a fast moving and technological world. But I still think that the ability, so for, let's just take me for example. I had to write this book, which is now 220 pages long. And it took so much, com- so much patient, complex thought for me to, to, to deliver a book that I could be proud of, and certainly hopefully my friends and family are proud of too, is I still think there is profound and deep value for the person who can just sit and concentrate on one problem for a long time. And I absolutely believe that the rapidity and the obsolescence that comes with technology is a, clearly a driving force in the world of technology. But I also think those people by themselves can't 
solve the world's problems without the people who are kind of what I guess you think the old fashioned tradition. Let me do it with a pen and a pencil. Let me. And, and I feel like there's a partnership to be had in the. And I certainly hope that's the case because then if it's not, I'm gonna be left behind. But I guess what I'm saying is, I I will never not believe in the fundamental need for kids to live yeah. without constant disruption, without the constant like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. What's that? And then I move on to that kind of. I think there is. I I think the most surely I don't know enough about Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, but I am convinced that their powers of concentration were like none others. One, two, and I'm sure you've seen this. Those guys, there's a story in the Times about the tech giants, what they let their kids, how much time they let their kids spend on technology. It was shocking how little. Steve Jobs wouldn't let technology, his kids own an iPad. They, there was a story in the New York Times, it was like the head of Dell, Steve Jobs, about five big tech giants. You would think that their homes and their kids were always on the newest innovation, the newest thing. It was the complete opposite. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. That's that's because this class I run, it's called Innovation and Open Source Learning. And yeah. a lot of people think that it's focused on tech. It's not. It's focused on creativity. Great. And, and yeah. so many times people interchange the word tech with creativity or innovation. Yep. And that's not yep. it. And, and, and to some well, degree, irony, like, like that's one of our missions is like, it's not about a device. Like I've got a friend of mine, right. his, his Twitter handle is there's no app for pedagogy. Um, right. it, it's, it. It, it's, it's not about necessarily. Like device, you can't, but you, there is. is no fast way to learn French. I don't care what anybody, I mean, besides, you know, there are the Pimslers and so there is a way like you got to get immersed in it. But exactly. really do any of our classrooms have immersion? Is there any time for freedom, mastery, and autonomy? Is there any time for them to innovate? I, I get it. Like from, from kindergarten up through maybe eighth grade, there's a lot of foundational things we need to learn, yep. have to learn. But at the high school level, you have to make time for them to invent. You have to make time for them to find out what their calling is. You have to make I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, yep, I agree. I could not agree with you more. And so now let's get back to charter schools. So this is an example, or this is one of the examples, is the problem with one, underfunded schools, Two, I think a lot of good came with the spirit of charter schools. I, I think that. But I have seen up close what the competition for resources, money, yeah. has done to these schools. Yep. I grew up in a school in a small town in South Carolina that in a rural, primarily black town. So it was, we were not a thriving economic hub. But in my school, they taught Latin, French. Spanish, we had a marching band, we had an orchestra, we had a chorus, we had shop, we had home ec, we had ROTC, we had every amenity, club after club after club, student body, home honor society, everything. These schools, these little poor charter schools, and now the public schools, so they compete, don't have any of that. And I've been in the schools, I've looked around, I've seen them. They are bare bones. And I, I'm happy to have a conversation and have a debate over whether it should be home ec or shop or should it be computers or coding. I have no problem with that conversation. Let's whip swap. If it's time to give up home ec and make it coding, let's do it. I have no problem with that. But that's not the, that's not even on the table at this point because the disruption economy, which is the charter school and the underfunding, has actually debilitated the 
schools. They've driven out the, I call them co-curricular activities. Everyone call them extracurricular activities. I call them co-curricular because I think they're every bit as important as English and math. You know, and so, and so I, my, feel, my problem is there are so many different divides in this education conversation and there are not enough of us having, trying to say, okay, this is what life is like over in these poor black schools. This is what life is like in these poor white schools. Here's what's like in these really rich white schools or these really rich mixed race schools or whatever. What is going on that's right? What's going on that's wrong? And I can tell you this, however, you know, let's take the most brilliant off the cuff writer, inventor, coder. It's not always noisy. Like I promise you there's a time when they're sitting quietly and concentrating. And if you come in and you start playing a trumpet, they're going to be like, get the hell out of here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so I guess, the, so that's what I'm talking about with the schools that oh, I was yeah. in and mo- most concerned about. All of the new technology, they're still going to have to concentrate. Even when they're having the most fun, they're concentrating. Yeah. So I'm just, that, I'm just, how do we drive that out so that we can then actually create a stable world in which you can create, yep. like, there are a lot of well, artists. and then part of this sorry, part of this is also educating the parents too. Like yes, just sitting down and memorizing the SAT playbook is not a, yeah. is not a recipe for success. Or hoping your son gets a football scholarship isn't necessarily a recipe for success. And and, and and that that is although one of my favorite quotes. Um, <laughs> if anybody's listening, it's, it's a warning. A lot of a lot of bad language because it involves Gary. Um, but uh, Damon Damon John. Shark Tank was with Gary and they had kind of a forum, a panel and he's, and he, and Damon said, you know, what's going to, what needs to happen for parents to realize that that really expensive education might, and, and they're a, and he said a major, I'm not going to make fun of it, but he's like, and, and yet, and yet in the meantime, I know a heavy machine operator that this job has set empty for 15 months. When are people going to realize that traditional education needs to be shooken up? And then Gary goes, when carnage happens. He said, and I, and I hate that, but in a lot of ways, I think a lot of things that we're talking about, parents will come to realize, people will come to realize, big academia will begin to realize the old way is not necessarily preparing for the future. Now, what it's doing is making, it's, it's making the big test companies a lot of money, um, yeah. but preparing them for the future of memorizing things short term, that's, that's dead. It's dead. I'll say this. I'll say this. I'll say this. I think I'm probably... I, I feel like it's halfway between you and me in some way. Like, I though I personally like pen and paper and that sort of thing. I totally get that there's a whole world that's driving the new world that need, kids need to absorb and feel comfortable with. But I also strongly feel that there has to be, we can't just drive out all the old ways of doing things. Oh, no, no, I'm no. Not no. Talking, I'm not, and I'm not, not even talking about behavior at, at this point. I'm talking, I'm talking about, about one period a day. Like, yeah, that's, I, that's yeah. all I'm asking for. Like, then I love it. Then I, I love it. Then I'm on board. Right. Like, I don't think that my class is the answer, but I yeah. like the fact that for one period a day, because ironically enough, one of my students put me on notice like four years ago. And I said, you know, I'm the innovation coordinator for the school. And I said, if I do a good job, I should work myself out of a job because I'll teach more teachers to be innovative in the classroom. They said, Mr. Wetrick, no offense, that's a dumb idea. I go, why? And she, she says, because I need, she's like, there are some classes that just aren't innovational, but are foundational. And I need to learn. She's like, innovation is its own time. It's its own art form. 
And yeah. I like the fact that I have an hour and a half to work on something, yeah. but I also have yeah. an hour and a half to learn about civil rights. And she's well, we like, are, yeah, having yeah. that balance is, is the key. Look, dude, that is the most, I, then we are 100% on the same page. You look, so, so for example, you look at, and all art is like this. So modern dance, all the great Martha Graham, Alvin, all these great modern dances, they started with traditional classical ballet. Yep. They could not have become, Arthur Graham could not have become Martha Graham had she not known the fundamentals of classical ballet, which is several centuries old by now. Yep. So you need them both. And I agree with you completely. I taught a class in a private school, which is probably the favorite class, one of my favorite class I ever taught. It was an elective government class. I was thinking, how do I get kids interested in teaching, learning about, I mean, kids hate the U.S. government. I mean, they just don't want to learn about the Bill of Rights. They just don't care about the and I was starting, and then I realized, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have them watch The West Wing by Aaron Sorkin, which I'm sure you remember. Okay. When I tell you, these were ninth graders, by the way. When I tell you those, that show is now over 20 years old. When I tell you those kids ate it up, that's innovation to me. Teach, and I would show an episode of the show, then I would generate a traditional lesson plan. I didn't have to take notes. They just had to watch it. There was some vocabulary because Sorkin's vocabulary used to work for Sorkin. His vocabulary can be kind of big. So it would make them kind of write down new words here and there. But it was, I just wanted them to literally enjoy the drama of the show. And then I would, I would then do a lesson plan that was kind of traditional. But then I had them at the final yeah, I love thing that of the, plan. and then at the end, I had them write a teaser, the first 10 minutes of their own West Wing about any issue in government that they cared about. So those were three. One was non-traditional. One, literally just watching a TV show, which they love. Then it would be a traditional lesson plan. Well, okay, let's study the Bill of Rights. Write out what the first 10 are. Tell me what it means. Apply it to a... That's old-fashioned learning. And then the last thing was innovative. Now we've watched, by the end of the semester, we would have watched, you know, 15 episodes of the, uh, of the West Wing. Now write your own. You can act it out. You can film it. And they love and and yeah. then one other thing they did at the end of the day, I made them memorize the Gettysburg Address, traditional learning. And so it was the yeah. mixture. And when I tell you that was those kids' favorite class to this day, it's their favorite class. Oh sure, I mean, it's like, and, I, I love that blended learning. And matter of fact, I'm glad you made me clarify that because too often times people think that I want to throw out a lot of things. I don't. I just want to enhance. I think you should, you don't, you know what you're doing, but I think that that would be valuable for people hearing that. Because when I hear, and I obviously listen to your, I've listened to your podcast and I know your heart and I know what you're saying. I'm kind of, when I read between the lines, but I think if you, I think you, it would help. Somebody needs to bring the two sides together. And I think you're in a great position to do that. And I think if you can say what you just said to me, I'm just talking about one class today because they need the foundation. The story you just told me about your student, like that's a great, you know, that, that's a very comforting story. And I don't even know when I'm learning new stuff, I'm like, okay, calm down. It's really throwing you off. It's a lot. Just, just take a breath. Start from the things you absolutely know, you feel comfortable, and then grow from there. Because grow, it's, it's always, I had to write a book, never written a book before. So I was stressed by that. That was sort of innovative for me. Yeah. So I had to say, but you know how to write. You've written essays before. Just start from there and go out into this new territory. But yeah. you do need the foundation to get to the map. You know, and I think everybody wants the gadgets and the fun and the what's the new thing. Excitement. You're not going to be of any help to anyone 
<laughs> if all you know how to do is yep. the new flashy thing, if you don't know how to sit down, you know what, that flashy thing over there, actually, that doesn't make sense. That's silly and just for show. But this kind of flashy thing over here, this actually has teeth. This can last a little longer. This can kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. And it takes ability. Yeah, so I think there is a meeting on the mind that needs to happen in the conversation about education and sort of an honest look at it. And I am not, a, I, I don't get paid as an educator. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wanted to come to it sort of as an outsider. Yeah, oh, as absolutely. A person who does, That's what I enjoyed about doesn't, it. Yeah. It doesn't have a stake in the, in the, I'm not in a union. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a full-time teacher. I'm not running for office. I, I just want to hear it. I'm a, I like to think I'm a pretty observant, bright guy. Here's the world I saw. And, and know that I'm just trying to present a, uh, a, a, a picture of a world that's in crisis and ideas about how to change it. And I don't, I look, I'm not a part of a startup. I don't have a whatever. So it's that technology. I just, like you said, I just want it to work. And I just want our kids to be ready for the 21st and the 22nd and 21st centuries. That's all I want. No matter what they are, black, white, poor, rich, I don't care where they come from. I just want them to be ready to thrive in the future um, and keep this country where it should be and get it where it's supposed to be. It's a great way to wrap up. Sinke, I, I appreciate that. No, I, I do. Um, number one, uh, again, um, writing this book as an outsider, but being embedded on the inside is exactly what I appreciated. Even my skeptical mind, I'm like, you know, I was looking through it and it's kind of reading through it. I'm like, mm-hmm, easy for him to say. And then after, right. I'm, like, I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. But that doesn't make these things not true. And, uh, yeah. and I enjoyed the insights and I enjoyed... Um, you know, just you wanting to kind of lean in and say, okay, as an outside passive observer that was though embedded, here's some things that I saw. And, and I, I think um, these are crucial conversations and uh, ones that I definitely want to carry forward. And, and heck, I, I sense there may be a podcast number two at some point and uh, we Let's can do it. this therapy session further. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, and also, you know, happy launch day. I'm uh, proud to, to have this interview on, on your, on your uh, important day, but uh any other places you want our listeners to go and check out things, your, your social media profiles or what? I'm on um, my website. It's Henderson.com. You can email me there. I check it all the time. Um, my Twitter is I French for I am Sinke. So it's at Je suis Sinke. <laughs> um, and I have a Facebook page. And so, yeah, please, I'm excited for people. I think, people will be very surprised by the insights and the psychology. It, it's both a story that I think is interesting, um, just as a memoir, just as a, uh, you know, a character story, funny kids, funny interactions, some harrowing, some harrowing interactions. But there's also a lot I think you can learn about race, class, American life, what it means to be a citizen in this country. Um, and education is something that touches all of us and it's important to all of them. I just hope people check it out. And I'm uh, more than eager for any kind of feedback. And I just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show.